Welcome to PPMD's Living Duchenne, a podcast bringing together community voices to talk about navigating the Duchenne experience. Welcome back to our podcast, Living Duchenne. I'm your host, Rachel Poiski. We are in the middle of a season of Living Duchenne where we are focusing on the women and girls of Duchenne. You know, so many times we think about how Duchenne is a boy's disease. That's what we communicate a lot of times. And that's actually not the full picture. Um, You know, even I love in another podcast where we talked and someone said, um, both of my kids are affected by (laughs) Duchenne, but one of them actually has the the disease in their body, right? Um, Everyone's affected by Duchenne and women are affected by Duchenne. And today we're talking Uh, specifically about women and girls with Duchenne, um, those who are manifesting carriers and those who have severe symptoms and mild symptoms. And we are trying to bring light to that because often this is unfortunately a forgotten part of our community that is an important part of our community. And there's a lot of specific things that impact girls and women with Duchenne. And we need to consider those and we need to figure out as a community how we can support girls and women with Duchenne. As you know, World Duchenne Day, Awareness Day, specifically was focusing on women, which was um, just a great thing. And so we want to continue that conversation. And to do that, I have two guests on that I'm so excited about, um, Deb Jensen and Mariana Livingston. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves and share their story and their connection to girls with Duchenne and women with Duchenne. So, Deb, if you'll start us off and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your family. Sure, absolutely. Um, Hello. Very, very happy to be here. Um, I live in Alabama and um, my husband and I have triplet daughters. They're 13 years old um, and two of them actually have Duchenne. Um, one of them is on the semi-mild spectrum. She does have some, she can't r- run very fast. She can't do cartwheels. Um, otherwise she's pretty normal. And then um, my other daughter, unfortunately, has much more severe symptoms, uh, very similar to a boy her age would have. So she's she rides a mobility scooter that she takes anywhere outside of the house, um, including to school. She can't stand up from most chairs. Um, she can't go up and down stairs. She's still walking, um, but you know, having some issues with that. So that's kind of where we're at um, with our family. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Mariana, tell us a little bit about you. Hi, my name is Mariana Livingston, and it's a pleasure to be able to talk about my experiences with Duchenne. I have um, three children. My oldest child uh, was diagnosed with Duchenne when he was three years old. I also have a middle son who does not have Duchenne, and then my youngest daughter, who's now 14, we're still have not done the testing yet to determine if she's a carrier or not. Um, I live in South Carolina. Um, and besides three kids, we have, I have my husband and four cats, <laughs> uh, one dog, quite a lot of fish, uh, two chickens and a worm bin. <laughs> 
but I'm happy to be here to talk a little bit more about our family's experience um, with Duchenne. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's a lot of animals. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And we have, it's, uh, you know, Southern women today. I live in Texas. So the, we should, we should call this the Southern Duchenne women podcast today or something. Awesome. Well, I want to start because I think this is a question a lot of people have probably, I mean, we, we all hear stories about how long diagnosis takes um, you know, even in boys. And so I want to hear, um, just how did you even get to a diagnosis with, um, either yourself having Duchenne or with your girl? So Deb, how did, how did you get there? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people talk about their diagnosis day that they never forget. Um, and for us, it was very different than that. I grew up with a brother, an older brother that had Duchenne. Um, and, you know, my daughters being triplets, they were born prematurely. Um, two of them had pretty severe developmental delays. So we were told for a while, well, it's because they're they're preemies, they'll catch up when they're one. Um, they got to one and then it was, well, they'll catch up when they're two. Um, and then it was, well, you know, they might have cerebral palsy. Maybe their brains aren't fully um, developed, you know, just all these different things. And um What happened with us is one day, my daughter, Sarah, um, who has the more severe symptoms, she was, um, I think she was about almost three years old and um, was just learning to walk. She stood up from the floor and she did the Gowers maneuver um, that, you know, many of us are familiar with. And, you know, I saw her do that. I recognized that from my brother. And so I said to my husband, I said, Sarah has Duchenne. Um, so took that to a doctor, said, Sarah has Duchenne. Um, and the doctor said, well, that's impossible. Girls don't get Duchenne. Um, after a few visits, convinced her to refer us to another doctor. Um, so we went to another doctor, a neuromuscular specialist who said, girls can't have Duchenne. (laughs) So, you know, a few visits with him, he finally agreed to do a blood test, which, you know, all that told us was, yeah, they're carriers of Duchenne, right? For a boy that would, you know, many times that would give you the diagnosis, but not for a girl. So yes, they're carriers. And then finally he agreed to do a muscle biopsy on one of my daughters. And that confirmed for us, but, you know, for us, we don't consider that diagnosis day. Um, For us, really, it was the first time she did the Gowers when, when we knew. Yeah. It was a, you know, kind of this devastation followed by kind of being strung along, trying to convince everybody. Um, it was pretty difficult. Yeah, that, you know, it just sounds so hard to have to, can, you know what, you know what you're dealing with and to have to convince to get to a diagnosis, to fight for a diagnosis, which is something, you know, none of us should be able to have to do if, but Yes. Um, so what about you, Mariana? How did you get to a diagnosis? My path to a diagnosis is probably more typical of what you might see for females with Duchenne, especially um, those that are carriers with heart symptoms. Uh, but the year it began um, when my son was three, which was a very difficult year um, as he was diagnosed with Duchenne. And at the time I was a month pregnant with my third child, my, my daughter. 
And um, so we knew we were having a girl. And at that, at the beginning, they didn't recommend necessarily that I needed to do the carrier testing. But about a month before I was about to deliver, I did go to the neuromuscular clinic with my son and the genetic counselor said, well, you know, you really should get tested to see if you're a carrier because you might have heart problems later in life. Um, and I said, okay. I said, and insurance would probably pay for it because you're pregnant. And I'm like, well, I'm almost at the end of the pregnancy. <laughs> but she said, still, they'll probably pay for it. So I went to do the testing. And um, while waiting for the results, I gave birth to my daughter. And a irregular rhythm was noticed with my heart. And so about a week after delivery, I ended up over at the cardiologist office and I did tell him the first thing I said is, yes, I have a son with Duchenne. Um, that cardiologist was a young cardiologist, I have to say, an electrophysiologist. And I was in that office about three hours. Um, and I'm pretty sure he was consulting with people to figure out exactly what's going on. But he came back in and said, you know, I feel like your heart looks like someone who has Duchenne. And he kind of based that. At that point, we only had an echocardiogram and an EKG, but he said, based on my EKG pattern. Um, and then we went through the whole process um, of, you know, uh, second opinions and et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, he was proven right because my genetic test did come back as being a carrier. He, we didn't even have my genetic test results when he told me that. I came back as a carrier. And then the cardiac MRI also confirmed the, the way there was scarring on my heart indicated for that I, this was due to being a carrier of Duchenne. So have they, did they diagnose you, Mariana, with, um, as a manifesting carrier? Or did they give you a Duchenne diagnosis? I'm just thinking that might be helpful for maybe some, some other moms out there. Well, you know, this is, that's an excellent point that you bring up because you know, I've been on the Facebook groups and I see um, other women and their experiences and the challenges that they have with diagnoses and doctors. And the interesting part is I, I really feel that cardiologist in the beginning. And I, I remember looking at my medical record thinking, wow, in my mind, I'm like, I'm a symptomatic carrier of Duchenne. He put that I have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I felt and looking back and seeing some of the concerns people have had, every doctor since that, because they've had the charts, and I've seen a lot of doctors because we've moved a lot, <laughs> has said, you know, they put on my chart, you should muscular dystrophy. So I think in a sense, you know, we almost need to move away from carrier, you know, or a manifesting carrier to say Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Deb, how do you feel about that? What, how do you feel about, have you, have your daughters ever been labeled manifesting carrier as opposed to Duchenne? Cause I, I think this is an important discussion for us to, to think about. So, yeah. Well, so let me first say, I mean, I, I suspect that your doctor might have um, made the diagnosis Duchenne instead of carrier to get um, insurance approval to do that cardiac MRI. Um, because what we have been told, and at first my daughter's word, the diagnosis was first it was carrier, then it was manifesting carrier. 
Um, but, you know, for us, it's very important that the diagnosis says Duchenne muscular dystrophy, because when the FDA approves something, they approve it for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So um, I think that's our diagnosis now. I hope so. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly, I think that's very important. Uh, that kind of leads me to clinical trials, Deb, because I think that's a good point in terms of you know, both of you about is it uh, where are we and how things are labeled and then getting the services and the drugs, you know, that are needed. So Deb, what has been the challenge for you with your girls with clinical trials? I assume, you know, we all know that, uh, clinical trials have very specific criteria and we're all, we're all like, Oh, can we fit in that criteria, uh, to get into a trial? But, but I know then with um, having girls that has to throw even more kinks in trying to get into a clinical trial. So can you talk a little bit just about what that, I assume, struggle has been? Yeah, I mean, I tried for years to get them into some kind of clinical trial. Um, but, you know, if you look at the criteria, every single one of them is very specific boys. Um, and I've talked to various, I've talked to pharmaceutical companies about it. I've talked to people running drug trials about it. And, you know, what they tell me is, and it makes sense, but they say that, you know, you want your data to be as close as possible as far as how people are affected. And you don't want to have an outlier because that's going to affect you getting drug approval. Um, and I totally understand that, but I have an issue with that because if you look at boys with Duchenne, there is a very wide range of severity. So I really think a drug trial should be based on, um, you know, where you are at and your ability level, um, as opposed to whether you're a boy or a girl. I mean, there are boys in trials that are affected the same as my daughter, Sarah, but they get to be in the trial because they're a boy. Um, however, you know, I should just caveat that in our personal experience, we were able to get um approval through the FDA through the compassionate use program. So we are actually in a drug trial and it's the, it's it's a trial that's the way compassionate use works is it's like a mini trial for this one person. So it's it's two because it's my two daughters but they're kind of in their own little mini drug trial um which is great. It's, the difference is that unlike regular trials our travel is not funded or anything like that. So um thankfully we we don't have to pay for the drug itself, but we do have to fund the travel associated with that. And for us, it's administered um, out of UCLA, which is across the country. Um, but we are very, very lucky to have had that opportunity. And, you know, even finding a doctor that would sponsor us for the compassionate use program was also very, very difficult. We had tried that for a while um, before we found a wonderful doctor that would do that. So yeah, it's definitely been an uphill battle for us. That That's great information though, I think. And I'd wondered when you said that, is there any compassionate use? So I'm glad that that has been a way you all have been able to um, get your daughters in trials. Uh, Mariana, what about you? Is there any, have you experienced anything with maybe a clinical trial you wanted to be in or um, your son? How, how has your experience gone? Um, for myself, as far as a clinical trial, just because at this point, it's really only the heart, my heart that's been affected. And then, you know, a lot of the 
clinical trials are for, um, you know, more skeletal, it impacts the skeletal muscle rather than the cardiac muscle. Um, so I haven't really been as focused on the trials and also just because with doing the typical drugs for heart failure, I've done well and my function has kind of remained stable. Um, but you know, now I am at that age 50 and I was recently at a, um, a conference, Duchenne conference and one of the cardiologists that actually sees a lot of carriers, about 60 carriers is on his caseload. And he felt, you know, that all carriers <laughs> need to be seen by a cardiac specialist that has some familiar, you know, that's familiar with Duchenne. And, but he was kind of talking about the age 50, you know, as things change, um, I'm getting older and, you know, my heart function is more than likely going to change. So, you know, I want to feel like I'm ready for, for that situation. And I know there is a clinical trial out there right now um, that I have looked at for my son, but his heart function, unfortunately, isn't good enough to be able to be part of the trial. But it made me think, oh, okay, you know, as you guys are talking, I'm like, wow, okay, this actually could be something that may be a beneficial drug for me. Um, but again, yeah, like Deb said, yeah, I'm going to have to, <laughs> it's going to be an uphill battle, um, to, you know, try to get in, uh, figure out, you know, the best, the, be the best solution, um, for that. But I'm kind of happy to say I'm in South Carolina, so there's not, and I know there's more of these carrier clinics starting like at UPenn, they have that new one, which I think is fantastic. And the one thing that cardiologists that I'm met at the conference. I mean, he, I was able to get the names of doctors in South Carolina that he would recommend that. And he was kind of saying, okay, if you can't go to the clinic, then you want to be with a team that's part of a medical university um, where they're going to be a little bit more up on the research. So, you know, I'm kind of excited that I'm going to be seeing that doctor coming up in the next month. And these will be good things to <laughs> the other push and talk about. Um, get the appendix. Um, as far as my son, he was in a clinical trial when he was younger. Um, you know, he kind of had the issue a lot where it's that narrow window. I remember for the first trial we tried for, you know, he, his walking was, he was just a hair too slow on how quickly he could walk. Um, but he is on one of the exon skipping drugs. So we were excited that um, that had come come through for him. And that is a question, and I don't know if Deb would know more, but I was also thinking about that and just knowing another family, I wondered, you know, whether they have a son and a daughter that's affected. I thought, okay, are they allowing the, some of the carriers to be, to get the exon skipping drugs if they're, if it's an appropriate one that they need for their deletion? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, do you have any uh, insight or experience with that, Deb, with exon skipping? Um, that's since, you know, my daughters have a nonsense mutation. I don't really pay attention to those, but I have yet to see a trial that's anything other than an interview where um, girls are allowed. Um, they're all very specific that they say boys. Yeah. Okay. We have to start a campaign girls in clinical trials. That's our campaign. 
And, you know, Rachel, the other thing that's very important about that is if you don't test these medications on girls, how do you know that there's not going to be an issue? So, I mean, I, I don't know that I want to give my girls a drug that girls have never had before because I don't know how it's going to affect them. So, you know, not only is there no, not really trials with girls, but there doesn't seem to be research either in the development of these drugs. If, you know, hormones can play a factor or if, you know, having some dystrophin or having a, a good X chromosome in there, you know, how, how does that affect the drug and is it harmful? Yeah. I, I think you're asking some very good questions because you know, I think when anyone enrolls uh, their child in a clinical trial, there's already this fear. What am I putting in? How is it going to impact? And then on top of that, yeah, you're saying um, it's one, it's not been tested in girls. So how do I know what else? So there's not even been, you know, a phase one, a phase two, that kind of thing, which is scary. And then um, the other thing which I can identify with as well, when you were talking about, okay, if they're making some dystrophin and then how does that impact the things? <laughs> my, my son makes a little dystrophin is in frame and he doesn't qualify for clinical trials. And, you know, I'm always like, do we put him in something that turns off what he's making? I don't know. That's such a non-scientific. <laughs> I should not Fair even I I should not say that. anything science at all. <laughs> So please, that is not a scientific thing. That's in <laughs> Rachel's head where she says, okay, he's making a little. So how does any drug impact that? You know, and I think that's a question like you're saying that, um, especially for girls with Duchenne, it's like, okay, if we have one ex that's doing something, <laughs> you know, do we want to mess with that? And that's a whole different ball game, um, which is why we have to, push for girls in clinical trials. That's, that's our new mantra. Um, okay. I want to take a moment because I think this is, this is so important, even though it can be hard to talk about, but our community needs to hear this. So if you're listening, please, I just, I want you to turn your ears up because, um, I want you to hear how, um, those, uh, girls with Duchenne and their families who have girls with Duchenne, how they experience sometimes the loneliness that comes from, from being um, part of something, but different. So Deb, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, ha have you ever felt lonely in this even more than having a rare disease? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think all the Duchenne families out there, you do experience some isolation just in regular society, um, you know, dealing with Duchenne, but then, you know, imagine going to a, a forum with other Duchesne families and not feeling welcome there either. Um, that's how it feels for us many times, just because um, there's just not recognition. Um, you know, most things you read just talk about boys having Duchesne and nothing, you know, every now and then you might see a little phrase that girls can have it too. Um, but it just... It just, we, to me, I mean, you know, in my family, we feel kind of unwelcome everywhere. <laughs> so um, it's a very isolating feeling. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think having this World Duchesne Awareness Day focused on women in Duchesne is very huge for us. It means so much 
to our family and other families that have girls dealing with Duchesne. Um, so, you know, we really, it's really important to us. And um, yeah. But one thing that happened recently with our family is um, my husband and I had been going to um, the PPMD conference uh, for years, every year. And this year we decided to bring Sarah, who's our more uh, severely affected daughter, um, so that she could meet some kids like her. Because she, you know, there's nobody in her school in a wheelchair or a scooter. You know, the only kids in her school with disabilities are kids with autism. She's never met anybody like her. So we're like, you know, it's time. We're going to bring her. She's going to meet kids like her. And we went there and, you know, she sat through many of the sessions. And I mean, out of probably 15 speakers she listened to, there was only one that very briefly mentioned girls. Um, and, you know, they were saying boys this, boys that, our sons, our boys and young men, um, with my daughter sitting right there in front of them. And although she had a good time at the conference, she said, wow, you know, I don't really fit in here at all. None of these people are like me, which was the opposite of what we wanted her to get out of it. So that was very difficult for us. Um, and I think PPMD has, as an organization has done tremendous things to sort of, you know, send the word out that girls get this too. And, you know, really honestly, if it weren't for PPMD, we wouldn't be in this um, drug trial, mini drug trial that we're in. Um, so that means a lot, but it's these, you know, doctors and researchers that come in to speak, um, you know, those are the ones that seem to forget about us. And then what you kind of come to with that is, well, if they don't even acknowledge that we, we exist, then are they really working on helping us or are they only working on helping boys? Um, you know, does anybody really care about us? So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty isolating. Um, but like I said, we really appreciate what PPMD has done. We really appreciate the World Duchesne Awareness Day focus this year. Um, and there's other organizations out there that are kind of raising the word, like Remember the Girls is one organization um, that's focused on all X-linked diseases um, that women aren't supposed to get. Um, so we do appreciate all of that. Yeah. I think, you know, I just appreciate you bringing this um, to light because we need to hear this and we do as a community need to, um, we all know what it feels like to be isolated because of Duchenne. And I imagine many people listening are just, you know, feeling heartbreak that, that your daughter feel has felt that. And uh, we have to do better. We have to do better in the Duchenne community to remember, remember the girls. And um, so I think that is one of the reasons why this is podcast is so important because um, we know we fight for, we fight for every child with Duchenne and that's every boy and every girl. And we've got to, we've got to change that. What do you, um, you know, Mariana, how about you? Where have you experienced kind of the loneliness of, uh, you know, having a child with Duchenne, but also dealing with it yourself? I would say from 
my perspective being an adult female where um, symptoms were recognized. And I think this may speak for um, other carriers and in a similar situation that um, to the general eye, my situation and condition can be quite hidden because physically, and that's what, when I was diagnosed, one of the doctors said, well, physically you look great. (laughs) And it's not until you do the MRI and echo and all that, that, you know, things start to show up. So it's this hidden aspect for some women and, or some women maybe that don't have a history in their family, but their first diagnosis might be a very vague diagnosis, such as fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. So, um, and I think the loneliness there can be just people not understanding that, yes, I have fatigue, um, but I'm hiding it. And, you you know, they just think, oh, well, you don't really have fatigue. (laughs) You don't have this situation. And um, on the other side with the loneliness, even though my heart condition was picked up because of that irregular heartbeat, and then the EKG was abnormal. um, Other women, you know, just trying to get providers to understand that the importance of the cardiac testing and looking at going, okay, um, yes, you are a carrier of Duchenne and the recommendations are that you start with some cardiac testing, you know, just to see if there, there's anything going on. Um, and that's where I know a lot of people have really struggled. And I would say not until recently have I felt like I've been through that in the sense of um, realizing, oh, wait, you know, I've just been going to a general cardiologist, but realizing, wait, I need to go to more of a specialist, but it was a bit of an uphill battle to get to convince (laughs) the referral to happen, um, you know, that I could go see the specialist because the specialist I wanted to see wouldn't just let me call them up and say, okay, I have Duchenne, (laughs) let me come in. They needed a referral. Um, you know, so I could relate a little bit more of what other people have gone through, just trying to get cardiac testing to happen. I think that is a great point. And I'm sure there's, you know, some caregivers out there who do have boys with Duchenne, but they have daughters that may be a carrier that may not, that they haven't maybe gotten tested. And so maybe, you know, this is a little bit of a push to say, We got to fight for the girls too. And, you know, if you have some concerns or you think, you know, maybe your daughter's needing um, some treatment or some testing to, uh, to look into that, you know, to make sure they're taken care of too. Well, this has been so uh, just a good conversation, I think, for the community to hear. Um, And as we are kind of wrapping up, I just want to thank you all for, for shedding light on something that we need light on. And um, I hope that this is a good, uh, a good start for us to really say, how do we incorporate girls with Duchenne better into our community? Um, I want to kind of close with our question. We ask uh, every person on our podcast. And that question is, what do you know to be true about living Duchenne? So I'm going to start with you, Mariana. What do you know to be true about living Duchenne? Living Duchenne 
means you need to find um, a way to be flexible because every day can be different um, and the challenges that you need to deal with can be, can be different. Um, and then just knowing, especially uh, knowing that the condition is progressive. Um, and for some of us, it may not be as progressive, but try, you know, that unknown factor. So I really feel like just trying to find that ability to be flexible, which I can tell you um, that I find very challenging. <laughs> but, and I'd also say, I mean, living Duchenne is being able to be part of the, part of the community and feel that there is a Duchenne community. And I, and that's where, you know, hearing Deb's story with her daughters that I would, you know, like to try to have the community embrace all of us who have Duchenne and not necessarily even look at it as a male, female condition, but a condition that affects everyone that carries the gene. Deb, for you, what do you know to be true about living Duchenne? Um, you know, for me, I've always been a control freak and a planner. Um, and one thing I've learned that I know to be true is that you really have to take it one day at a time because thinking about the future is just overwhelming. So just today, everything is good. This is where we are today. Forget about what's next. You know, in some cases you do need to think about, you need to plan house modifications and things like that. Um, but from an emotional standpoint, just take it one day at a time. Um, and then, you know, also just forget about what everybody else is doing. You know, your family is different. Your family has their own way they're doing things. And that's how it is. Doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. That's, that's good. That's good for all of us to remember. Well, this has been just a great conversation. And um, thank you both for joining us on this podcast of Living Duchenne. And for those of you listening, thank you for joining us as well. And we will be back next time for Living Duchenne.